From the kids to Aunt Sue. Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. Actual speed vary and not guaranteed. Here's an honest question. How are you supposed to know what to do with your money? Very few of us are exposed to meaningful advice on how to manage our finances. Even fewer have the means to get professional financial guidance. Betterment is a platform that was built to do something radical, to give accessible financial advice that puts you first. If you're like most Americans, your money is probably sitting in a savings account, likely earning you next to nothing. Maybe you have an investment account that you're not really sure what to do with. Betterment can help you make sense of what to do with your money. Investing involves risk, but you don't have to know the ins and the outs of the stock market to start investing for your future. Betterment's technology will put your money to work choosing the stocks and strategies that are right for you because we know you have other things to do. Betterment's platform can even provide guidance on what financial goals make sense for you. Give your money a new home with Betterment, peace of mind included. Download the Betterment app today. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T for the betterment of you. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it and you're using illegal drugs, alcohol, or other bad influences to try and escape the pain, you're not alone. Please stop and do me a favor. Call 800-831-1560. They'll show you a way out of the darkness. That's 800-831-1560. 800-831-1560. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Stand in front of a mirror, shut off the lights, spin around, chant her name three times and prepare for the scare of your life. Some say that this terrifying spirit called forth is that of Queen Mary I. Others believe that the ghost is that of Mary Worth. No matter, from one generation to the next, thrill-seeking boys and girls have passed down the legend of Bloody Mary. Some claim the bloodied woman merely appears in the reflective surface, while others purport she'll claw at your face, haunt you for life, or even kill you. Perhaps you even took on the hair-raising challenge as an adolescent, only to run away from the mirror and out of the room, screaming before the evil spirit had a chance to appear. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, fact or fiction, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you're new here, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Was the Titanic swapped with its sister ship, the Olympic, 
as part of an insurance scam? A U.S. veteran is so desperate for financial relief, he turns to a witch's very dark solution. Mobsters gun down one of their own in order to save an enemy. Why? A tragic figure in Mexican folklore, she wears white and wanders the waterside in profound grief. Her name is La Llorona. And they say if you chant her name three times, a bloodied face will appear. I speak, of course, of Bloody Mary. We'll look first at the legend, and then at some first-hand experiences that may have you believing the legend is real. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Long before the malevolent Bloody Mary came to haunt the living, the original ritual held roots in a young woman's coming of age. Hundreds of years ago, pubescent girls curious about their destined true love would walk backwards up a flight of stairs, then peer into a mirror in a darkened room while holding a candle. This was said to reveal the face of their future husband. Sometimes, however, a skull materialized, signifying death before getting a chance to marry. A scientific explanation for such visions highlights the hallucinations that inevitably set in after prolonged periods of gazing into a mirror under poor lighting. Often these images appear to contort or melt away. It's no wonder, then, that the matrimonial mirror ritual eventually took a turn for the sinister. As time passed, the dark legend of Bloody Mary replaced the adolescent search for true love. It transformed into a test of fear for boys and girls, a party game with dire consequences. The identity of the actual woman known as Bloody Mary is difficult to pinpoint. There are several women through the ages that have been associated with the legend. The most famous is Mary, Queen of England a Roman Catholic ruler from the 16th century who was feared throughout the land for her persecution of Protestants, often burning them at the stake for the crime of their religion. A variation on the ritual involved chanting, I stole your baby, Bloody Mary, in reference to the Queen's failed attempts at bearing an heir. Another Bloody Mary was the vampiric Elizabeth Bathory, which we spoke of in a recent podcast, The Blood Countess in 16th-century Hungary, Elizabeth tortured, mutilated, and murdered young virgins and even drank their blood in a maniac quest to stay youthful. A more recent iteration of Bloody Mary belongs to a dark moment in American history. The Salem witch trial hysteria of the 17th century stoked fear and superstition throughout New England. Children of the era chanted, I believe in Mary Worth, in reference to a supposed practitioner of the dark arts who was burned alive for being a witch. Little, if any, proof exists to confirm Mary Worth's existence. In fact, her backstory received an update during the 20th century. 
Many will now tell you that Mary Worth was a beautiful woman who died in a car accident, her face severely disfigured and bloodied. When summoned, she appears to the conjurer dressed in all white, with blood dripping down her face. Hollywood also grabbed hold of the legend and turned it into a male character for the 1992 film Candyman. Chanting his name into a mirror summed the sinister spirit who would rip you to pieces with his hook hand. Clearly, the ritual of Bloody Mary refuses to die. We're waiting with bated breath to see what modern-day apparition will next appear from the other side of the mirror. Perhaps you don't believe the legend itself understandable, but then try to explain the following first-hand, real-life accounts of encounters with Bloody Mary herself. Marissa and her friend had just finished watching an eerie episode of Ghost Whisperer, and Marissa wanted to scare her friend, one of her favorite activities. So Marissa looked into her living room mirror, spun three times, saying, Bloody Mary, and no ghost appeared so she went to the bathroom to try again. Against the warning of her friend, Marissa shut off the lights, closed the door, and repeated the chant. When she looked into the mirror this time, there was still nothing. Disappointed, she was about to flip on the light when she caught a glimpse of something. She looked closer and discovered a black-and-white woman with her mouth open wide. Marissa expected a scream from the apparition but only found dead, terrifying silence. The woman in the mirror lifted her arms and Marissa saw that her hands were bright red, not with polish, but with blood. Her fingernails had been torn off. Hands reached out from behind Marissa and grabbed her shoulders. Marissa screamed, turned on the light, and ran from the bathroom. Katie was only nine years old when she and her friends decided to attempt Bloody Mary at her house one weekend. The five friends carefully carried candles to the bathroom and began chanting Bloody Mary. As they chanted, an old woman with cuts across her face and chains around her neck and shoulders appeared in the mirror. Suddenly, the shower curtain went up in flames and the girls fled the bathroom. An older boy ran in and put out the fire. Although the girls were blamed for the curtain catching fire, they and their candles were much too far away to have caused it. Twenty-five years later, Katie has never been tempted to try calling Bloody Mary again. While friends Sarah, Gail, and Missy hung out on Friday the 13th, they got to talking about Bloody Mary. The girls had been reading about her on the internet and decided to try the ritual for themselves. The trio got several candles and set them up in Gail's bathroom. They waited until 2.55 a.m., then went into the bathroom and chanted Bloody Mary 13 times. As soon as she had been called 13 times, Bloody Mary appeared in swirling smoke in the mirror. All three girls screamed and turned on the light, only for Bloody Mary to vanish immediately. A group of girls were spending the summer at a camp in the Pacific Northwest on an island called Anacortes. Sick of exploring the woods, they decided to collectively fake food poisoning. They ran to a bathroom, 
and shut themselves up in it hoping to make the fakery convincing. While they were in there, one girl, Jessica, came up with the idea to play Bloody Mary to pass away the time. The rest of the group agreed, and they shut off the lights. They said Bloody Mary three times into the mirror and waited. At first, there was nothing. Then the mirror cracked. All the girls ran off screaming, except for one. The remaining camper was paralyzed with fear. She stared and saw a flash of movement behind the mirror as if someone was standing right behind her. She turned and ran from the bathroom. The next morning, the girls laughed about the event, if only to hide how scared they had been. One night, Kelsey's friend had a slumber party. The girls dared one of their crew to try calling Bloody Mary in the bathroom. The friend accepted, glibly confident that the supposed ghost could do her no harm. Fifteen minutes passed as the other girls waited for something to happen, but there were no signs of Bloody Mary to be found. Then they heard the girl scream. She tried to get out of the bathroom and was stuck, even though the door didn't have a lock on it. When Kelsey and her friends finally got the girl out, she was crying and whimpering. She showed the girls her arms. They were covered in scars that had never been there before. To this day, Kelsey has not been able to get her friend to speak of what happened to her that night. In April of 2007, the 13th fell on a Friday. On that fateful night, Ezzy and her friends decided to try summoning Bloody Mary. They sat in a circle and called for the spirit, with a coin nearby to communicate. First, they asked that Bloody Mary show a sign that she was there. When they flipped the coin for an answer, they first received a no, but the following two times were yes. They were playing a CD at the time and it got scratchy, despite the fact that the CD was brand new with no marks on it. Then the girls began feeling dizzy and faint as they felt long fingernails brushing against their backs and faces. The blinds started shaking, although the window wasn't open. As he jumped up and closed the circle between the girls and Bloody Mary, they were all utterly shaken. To this day, as he still has the feeling that she is never truly alone. Lauren and her friend were in an experimental mood the night they decided to try calling Bloody Mary. While out on the road, they stopped at a gas station with an outdoor restroom. They went in, turned off the lights, splashed water onto the mirror, and spun around saying Bloody Mary three times. Lauren's friend flushed the toilet while Lauren stared into the mirror. What little of her reflection she could make out started turning red. She kept staring, then her friends started screaming and they ran out the door. Outside, Lauren's friends discovered that her face didn't just appear red. It was covered in blood. When they cleaned her face, they discovered tiny scratch marks, like fingernail scratches, all over her face. 29-year-old Amanda has a particularly dramatic tale of Bloody Mary. When she was only 12, Amanda believes that her summoning of the spirit opened a portal 
that allowed demons and witchcraft into her soul. All these years later, she has become addicted to drugs, has postpartum psychosis, was institutionalized for a month, and has suffered from extreme mental issues constantly. Amanda has even resorted to exorcisms without success, firmly believing that her young foolhardiness is responsible for her current problems. So let Amanda's story remind you that summoning ghosts is no laughing business. She has spent her life warning others of the danger of even seemingly innocent childhood games. Up next, was the Titanic swapped with its sister ship the Olympic as part of an insurance scam? Is it possible the Titanic never really did sink? This story and more when Weird Darkness returns. To what lengths will someone go in order to survive? Does the survival instinct override their conscience and allow them to commit not only murder but also the taboo act of cannibalism? What happens when a person crosses the line from dark fantasy to real-life acts of brutal rape, murder, and cannibalism? Are these people driven by a desire so insatiable that they're incapable of controlling it? Murderous Minds Volume 3 – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escape the Headlines is the latest offering in a series that takes you inside the lives of killers who committed cold-blooded murder for a glimpse at events that drove them to kill. Authored within a historical context, each chapter is an unbelievable venture inside the dark and twisted world of real cannibal killers whose names and crimes might not be familiar to you. By weaving a tale in which dark fantasies become reality, this audiobook invites you to see life from a perspective few ever witness, from that of the killer Along with a historical look at cannibalism through the ages, these stories beg the listener to answer the question, was the murderer committing cannibalism because he was incapable of resisting the urge to kill and consume, or is the explanation simply pure evil? Murderous Minds, Volume 3, written by Ryan Becker and Curtis Giles Vasey, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. My biggest issue when it comes to losing weight is I have no discipline. None. If I get a craving for something, I can't help myself. I have to satisfy the craving. But I'm trying something new now. No food after 6 p.m. Easier said than done, right? Well, that's my junk food monster time. Your time for daily cravings might be different. Well, fortunately, I found this CBD oral spray and it has been a big help, at least to me. Whenever I get this unhealthy food craving in the evening, I can keep it at bay with a few sprays of this product under my tongue. It's a salted caramel taste too, which kind of takes care of the uh, sweet tooth at the same time. So the craving to eat is gone, uh, the sweet tooth is gone, calories, none. If you need a little help battling back the craving monsters yourself, well, you can find a direct link to this CTFO weight loss oral spray on the sponsors page at WeirdDarkness.com.
It's an historical irony that the most famous ship to ever sail was famous because it sank, but that was the case with the RMS Titanic. Then the world's largest and most luxurious cruise liner, it hit an iceberg on its maiden voyage early on the morning of the 15th of April, 1912. Within three hours, it had sunk to the bottom of the ocean, killing 1,500 of the ship's 2,224 passengers and crew. Titanic was one of the three Olympic-class ocean liners built at the Harland and Wolfe shipyards in Belfast, the other two being the RMS Britannic and the RMS Olympic. The Olympic was launched a year before the Titanic but seemed to share its more famous sister ship's poor luck. Within months of its launch in 1911, it had two serious collisions, the second with Royal Navy cruiser HMS Hawk off the coast of the Isle of Wight causing serious structural damage to the Olympic's keel and steel beams. Some authors have suggested that the damage to the Olympic was more serious than admitted. In fact, it was virtually a write-off. Repairs would be ruinously expensive, running into millions of pounds. The already troubled White Star Line was facing a potential financial disaster. Could White Star and its owner, J.P. Morgan, have devised an audacious insurance scam to try and salvage their investment in the troubled Olympic line? The Olympic, the theory goes, would be swapped with the Titanic and sunk in a staged accident. The Titanic, now disguised as the Olympic, would then carry on in service. The two ships were essentially identical, save for minor differences, and were moored side-by-side in dry dock. The swap would entail nothing more elaborate than swapping a few nameplates and plaques. Although not a new theory, Robin Gardner popularized the insurance swap theory in his 1998 book, Titanic, The Ship That Never Sank. Could it really have been the Olympic that sank in the Titanic's place? Proponents of the swap theory have pointed out disparities in the number of portholes on the ships. The Olympic had 16, the Titanic had 14. Photographs taken of the Titanic in dry dock show it with 14 portholes, but by the time of its doomed maiden voyage, it now had 16, just like the Olympic. Was this evidence that the ships had been swapped or just that they had added two extra portholes as part of an aesthetic change to the Titanic. Other evidence supports the switch. The windows on the Olympic were somewhat unevenly spaced, but more evenly spaced on the Titanic. Again, by the time of its maiden voyage, the Titanic had acquired unevenly spaced windows, like the Olympic. The damage to the Olympic after its collision with the Hawk lent it a noticeable and permanent two-degree list to port. The undamaged Titanic had no such list. However, one second-class passenger who survived the sinking, Lawrence Beasley, later reported the Titanic did in fact list to port, stating the Titanic listed to port, it was plain she did so, for the skyline and sea on the port side were visible most of the time and on the starboard only sky. Beasley, a science teacher, was considered a reliable observer and would later write one of the first books about the Titanic disaster. There was a nationwide coal strike during the launch of the Titanic, leading to thousands of firemen, 
boiler stokers, and greasers short of work. Yet despite this, the Titanic struggled to find a crew, with many men refusing to work on the ship at any price. Rumors were circulating amongst the workers at Harland and Wolf that the ships had been swapped as part of an insurance scam and the Titanic was to be sunk. Did foreknowledge of the sinking of the Titanic frighten men off from wanting to work on the ship? Despite the immense fanfare and hype that surrounded the Titanic launch, it was only just over half full when it left Southampton on its doomed voyage. Did White Star want to minimize the number of passengers because it intended to scuttle the ship? Or had the rumors of the insurance scam spread outside of the shipyards? Several last-minute cancellations from high-profile passengers certainly suggest some kind of foreknowledge. Many of the richest and most prestigious names in the early 20th century society were booked onto the Titanic. J.P. Morgan, the international financier who owned the White Star's parent company, was due to travel on the Titanic, but canceled his trip a few days before the departure, claiming illness. A New York Times reporter discovered this to be a lie. Morgan was actually seen perfectly well with his mistress in France on the very day Titanic sank. Industrialist Henry Clay Frick and his wife, banker Horace J. Harding and billionaire George Washington Vanderbilt, all connected to J.P. Morgan, were amongst several other prominent figures who canceled at the last minute. The SS Californian, also owned by J.P. Morgan, was a large passenger ship that was ultimately blamed for the loss of life on the Titanic. It behaved somewhat oddly around the time of the Titanic's voyage. Carrying no passengers, it steamed into the middle of the Atlantic, stopped, and waited. Its only cargo was 3,000 woolen blankets and jumpers. What was the purpose behind this curious maneuver? Was the Californian intended to rescue the Titanic's passengers after the Titanic's deliberate sinking? Edith Russell, a survivor of the sinking, was adamant that Titanic officers assured her the Californian was on its way. Author Robin Gardner suggests serious navigation errors led to the Californian stopping in the wrong area, some 12 miles away from the Titanic. With the Californian unable to complete its rescue mission, the Titanic was doomed and some 1,500 passengers and crew perished in one of the worst maritime disasters in modern history. The wreck of the Titanic was discovered by Robert Ballard in 1985. Some evidence from the wreck supports the switch theory. The stamp 401, the ID number used for the Titanic at Harland and Wolf, can be seen on the Titanic's propeller. However, some authors have suggested that the Titanic propeller was fitted to the Olympic during its repair following the collision with the Hawk. If true, this would be strong evidence that the vessel on the ocean floor was really the Olympic. What appears to be the letters M and P can also be seen on the side of the wreck. Could that be the remains of the ship's original etched nameplate, Olympic, covered over with the Titanic's as part of the scam? The wreck appears to show some evidence of the gray paint used as an undercoat on the Olympic. The Titanic used black paint for its undercoat. Insurance scams and maritime fraud were common at the time of the Titanic's sinking. Whilst it seems unlikely such a scam could be pulled off today, 
the lack of media coverage in 1912 makes it a lot more credible. Only one film survives of the Titanic and the photo record is also scant. With the two ships extremely similar, it's argued that only the most eagle-eyed would have spotted the swap. Whilst the wreck of the Titanic, found in 1985, provided some evidence in favor of the swap theory, more emerged that suggest the ship found at the bottom of the Atlantic really was the Titanic. The Titanic's identification number, 401, is stamped in multiple places on the wreck and on furniture and other artifacts found by salvagers. Could the swap really have been so elaborate to include swapping furniture and decor between the two ships? Titanic scholars and historians say the proponents of the insurance swap theory have overstated how similar the two ships were. Whilst superficially alike, there were several important structural differences, as well as aesthetic changes made to Titanic to distinguish it from its sister. The first Class A deck on Titanic was enclosed in a glass screen, but was open on the Olympic. Titanic's wheelhouse was flat at the front and the Olympics curved. Olympic's B-deck had a first-class promenade, whereas Titanic had private verandas and suites. Indeed, many passengers were booked into the suites, an impossibility if the ship was really the Olympic. Many skeptics of the insurance swap theory have pointed out that even if an insurance scam made financial sense to the White Star Line, the loss of reputation they would suffer if one of their vessels sunk would be devastating. Losing the Titanic on its maiden voyage would be a public disaster for White Star and lead to a loss of confidence in the company amongst passengers. The intention behind the Olympic-class liners was to attract rich first-class passengers and offer them the finest in luxury and opulence. With image paramount, a sinking would prove to be a catastrophe for the company. The Titanic was infamously described as unsinkable. Whilst this proved to be incorrect, of course, only a freak set of circumstances managed to sink it. Could plotters really have engineered something so complex as the sinking of the world's largest vessel in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? With so many variables and so many things that could go wrong, how could they be sure they would succeed? If their plan was discovered, the consequences would have been dire. The perpetrators would be blamed for the deaths of 1,500 people, perhaps charged with their murders. Would the likes of White Line and J.P. Morgan, a billionaire who could afford any potential losses on the Olympic, really risk the gallows for an insurance scam? The Olympic, or if the insurance swap theory is true, the Titanic disguised as the Olympic, continued to serve for many years. It acted as troop transport in World War I and resumed service as a luxury liner in the 20s and 30s before being finally retired in 1935. In all of that time, no evidence that the ship was really the Titanic was ever discovered. Even when it was dismantled in 1936, there was no indication that the ship was anything other than the Olympic. When Weird Darkness returns, a U.S. veteran is so desperate for financial relief 
he turns to a witch's very dark solution. Mobsters gun down one of their own in order to save an enemy. And a tragic figure in Mexican folklore, she wears white and wanders the waterside in profound grief. Her name is La Llorona. These stories are up next. Well, it's the new year, and that means New Year's resolutions, right? So, what's your New Year's resolution? To lose weight? To exercise more? Maybe to give up a habit? Well, doing any of those things is going to be a lot easier if you have a good night's sleep first. And now's the perfect time if you've not already tried a MyPillow, because right now you can get two premium and two go-anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. Now, if you've been a weirdo for any length of time, you know I do not promote anything here unless I believe in it myself. I'm already using a MyPillow. I've got one of their seat cushions, which helped me immensely with some back issues I was having uh, in the office. And I also have one of their Go Anywhere pillows, which also helps out with the back problems, and I use it in the family room on my recliner, just lounging around. And now, in the mail, on its way, is a mattress topper for me. I, I just want to try it. But now is the perfect time to try my pillow. Get two premium my pillows and two go anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. All you have to do is visit mypillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. Click on the four pack special when you're there. mypillow.com, click on the four pack special, and then use the promo code WEIRD. Or you can call 800 945 7192. That's 800-945-7192. Ask for the four-pack special and use the promo code WEIRD for free shipping. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorrance Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book, Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Doran's Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362. 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorrance Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 
At this time, I grew desperate and sought out multiple ways to get money. Someone I knew told me that if I made a deal with a demon, I may get exactly what I needed. I used to be religious and used to never trust anything concerning demons, but at this point I no longer cared. I did my research and even spoke to a Wiccan who have made deals with demons before. She told me everything I needed to know. Late one night, during the full moon, I purchased everything I needed and went to my house to prepare. My brother was curious to do it too, but was skeptical, so I went first. I wrote down the deal with the demon I was told is known for finances. After not liking the deal, I threw it away and wrote a new one. Afterwards, I went into my room with all lights off and conducted the ceremony. After waiting for a while, there was nothing that went on and I gave up. I came out of the room only to see Cam looking frightened. He said while I was in the room, he had heard strange noises coming from the door. I hadn't heard anything while being in there. Cam was too afraid to go through with it after that. Afterwards, I took my current deal and threw it away, along with the candles and symbol of the demon that I wanted to contact. The next day, after leaving my part-time job and picking Cam up from his, we went home to something quite strange. The first offer that I threw away in the trash was found on my windowsill. On it had a small, bloody handprint. Cam asked if I took it out, and I said no. We were both frightened. To make things stranger, when the AC broke in our apartment, only my room was ice cold. On days, Cam would be home. He would hear voices asking who he is and what he wants. This carried on for two weeks. It was to the point we were both terrified. I found both deals I made, ripped them up, and tossed them in the dumpster. After three more days, my room was still ice cold, and I chose to stay in the living room with Cam. By the time we moved out, the room was no longer cold, and everything was back to normal. On October 23, 1935, mobster Dutch Schultz was gunned down at the Old Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey. Dutch's death was a strange one because it was carried out by other mobsters. But that's not the part that was so strange. His former allies killed him to save the life of the man who was perhaps their greatest enemy, Special Prosecutor Thomas Dewey. Schultz, whose real name was Arthur Flegenheimer, was born and raised in the Bronx. He had a minor record until the 1920s when he began learning the business as one of the many protégés of Arnold Rothstein. Schultz soon ran a gang that took over most of the beer trade in the Bronx. He had a reputation for being tough and mean, although a little on the strange side, and also had a keen eye for potential new sources for racket revenues. Schultz saw enormous potential offered by the Penny Annie numbers in Harlem, and he moved in aggressively on the independent African-American operators that were there. Using unremitting violence, he turned them into his agents and turned the numbers racket into an operation that grossed almost $20 million annually. Using a mathematical genius named Otto Berman, 
he figured out a way to doctor the results of the numbers game so that the smallest possible payout was made. Schultz was almost universally disliked. Not even his own men liked or respected him, but they did fear him. Schultz had the lowest payroll of any gangster in the city and flew into a rage if any of his gunmen dared ask for a raise. Only Otto Berman made big money, ranking in $10,000 a week. Money was everything to Schultz. As his attorney, Dixie Davis, once said of him, you can insult Arthur's girl, spit in his face, push him around, and he'll laugh, but don't steal a dollar from his accounts. If you do, you're dead. Among those who thought to have stolen from Schultz and died for it was the homicidal John Legs Diamond, who was rubbed out in an upstate New York hotel in 1931. He also fought an all-out war with Vincent Mad Dog Cole, a former underling who tried to take over Schultz's business. On February 8, 1932, Cole was machine-gunned to death in a telephone booth by some of Schultz's gunmen. Schultz was a useful tool of the National Crime Syndicate, started by Charles Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, and others, but they knew he was erratic and that sooner or later he would become too big of a risk to live. Schultz went to prison on tax evasion charges and while away, Meyer Lansky and mobster Bo Weinberg took over his rackets. Then, unbelievably, Schultz beat the rap and came back to claim his operation. Lansky, wanting to avoid more bloodshed, insisted that he had just been minding the store for Schultz until the trial ended. Schultz overlooked Lansky's betrayal, but Weinberg disappeared a short time later and was never seen again. Before any further decisions had to be made about the fate of Dutch Schultz, the law intervened once more. This time it was in the form of Special Prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey, who in his war on vice and racketeering turned his main focus on Schultz in 1935. Dewey had been appointed to his position by New York Governor Herbert Lehman to look into organized crime in New York. The first of three inquiries into police corruption and political racketeering had started in 1930. The public was appalled by the web of corruption that existed at almost every level of city government. The news broke that Democrat Party officials had used a $10 million depression relief fund for their own uses. The sheriff of New York County and other officials were involved in illegal gambling operations and that graft governed the granting of city permits, franchises, and leases. Dewey extended the parameters of the investigation to known racketeers, including some of the most prominent names in organized crime. He won 72 out of 73 convictions, and eventually his successful investigations led to his appointment as district attorney in 1937. Dewey went on to become governor of New York State, and he ran twice for U.S. president, losing in 1944 and 1948. Before all of this, however, he owed his life, even though he never knew it, to Charles Lucky Luciano. Thanks to Dewey's attention to Schultz, the mobster saw his operations halted and his revenues decreased. In 1935, Dewey confiscated thousands of Schultz's slot machines and publicly smashed them. Schultz had one solution to his new problem – kill Dewey. Schultz went to the syndicate, asked for permission to have the special prosecutor taken out, 
but his demand was refused. Luciano explained that the heat that would be generated by Dewey's murder could permanently damage the syndicate's operations. Schultz stormed out of the meeting, swearing that he would kill Dewey himself. It would be Schultz's murderous nature and his refusal to listen to reason that would get him killed. Luciano had to get rid of Dutch, and after a meeting with Lansky and others, Schultz's fate was sealed. On October 23, 1935, Schultz, Otto Berman, and two gunmen, Lulu Rosencrantz and Abe Landau, were having dinner at one of Schultz's favorite hangouts, the Palace Chop House and Tavern in Newark, New Jersey. Schultz got up from the table and went to the bathroom. While he was in there, two gunmen, Charles Workman and Emanuel Weiss, entered the restaurant. On their way in, one of them checked the men's room and, seeing a man at the urinal, shot him. He had no idea who the man was. His back was to him, but the killer wanted to ensure that the assassins wouldn't be surprised from behind. Moments later, they gunned down the three men at the table. Checking the bodies, they discovered that Schultz was not among them. Remembering the man in the bathroom, they found out that it was Dutch Schultz, shot while in one of the worst positions imaginable. After cleaning the cash out of his pockets, the killers fled the restaurant. Amazingly, the shots had not immediately killed Schultz. Legend has it that he did not want to be found dead in a bathroom, so he staggered back into the dining room and collapsed on one of the tables. He lived for two more days in the hospital, but never named his killers. Thomas Dewey never knew how close he was to death, or that he owed his life to a man whom he later convicted and sent to prison. Lucky Luciano. Patricio Lujan was a young boy in New Mexico in the 1930s when a normal day with his family in Santa Fe was interrupted by the sight of a strange woman near their property. The family watched in curious silence as the tall, thin woman dressed all in white crossed the road near their house without a word and headed for a nearby creek. It wasn't until she got to the water that the family realized something was off. As Luhan tells it, she just seemed to glide as if having no legs before disappearing. After reappearing at a distance far too quickly for any normal woman to have traversed, she disappeared again for good, without leaving a single footprint behind. Luhan was disturbed but knew exactly who the woman had been – La Llorona. The legend of La Llorona translates to the weeping woman and is popular throughout the southwestern United States and Mexico. The tale has various retellings and origins, but always La Llorona is described as a willowy white figure who appears near the water waiting for her children. Mentions of La Llorona can be traced back over four centuries, although the origins of the tale have been lost to time. She's been connected to the Aztecs as one of ten omens predicting the conquest of Mexico or as a fearsome goddess. One such goddess is known as the Snake Woman, 
who has been described as a savage beast and an evil omen who wears white, walks about at night, and constantly cries. Another goddess is that of the Jade-Skirted One, who oversaw the waters and was greatly feared because she allegedly would drown people. In order to honor her, the Aztecs sacrificed children. An entirely different origin story coincides with the arrival of the Spanish in America back in the 16th century. According to this version of the tale, La Llorona was actually La Malinche, a native woman who served as an interpreter, guide, and later mistress to Hernán Cortés during his conquest of Mexico. The conquistador left her after she gave birth and instead married a Spanish woman. Despised now by her own people, it is said that La Malinche murdered Cortés's spawn in vengeance. There is no evidence that the historic La Malinche, who did in fact exist, killed her children or was exiled by her people. However, it is possible that the Europeans did bring the seeds of the legend of La Llorona from their homeland. The legend of a vengeful mother who slays her own offspring can be traced all the way back to Medea of Greek mythology, who killed her sons after being betrayed by her husband Jason. The ghostly wails of a woman warning of impending death also share similarities with the Irish banshees. English parents have long used the tale of Jenny Greenteeth, who drags children down into a watery grave to keep adventurous children away from water where they might stumble in. The most popular version of the tale features a stunning young peasant woman named Maria who married a wealthy man. The couple lived happily for a time and had two children together before Maria's husband lost interest in her. One day, while walking by the river with her two children, Maria caught sight of her husband ride by in his carriage accompanied by a pretty young woman. In a fit of rage, Maria flung her two children into the river and drowned them both. When her anger subsided and she realized what she had done, she succumbed to such profound grief that she spent the rest of her days wailing by the river in search of her children. In another version of the story, Maria cast herself into the river immediately after her children. In yet other versions, Maria was a vain woman who spent her nights reveling in town instead of tending to her children. After one drunken evening, she returned home to find them both drowned. She was cursed for her neglectfulness to search for them in her afterlife. The constants of the legend are always the dead children and a wailing woman, either as a human or ghost. La Llorona is often spotted in white, crying for her children near running water. By some traditions, the ghost of La Llorona is feared. She is said to be vengeful and sees others' children to drown them in place of her own. By other traditions, she is a warning, and those who hear her wails will soon face death themselves. Sometimes she is seen as a disciplinary figure and appears to children who are unkind to their parents. In October 2018, the people who made The Conjuring released a horror film riddled with jump scares, The Curse of La Llorona. The flick is reportedly pretty spooky, though perhaps with this background on the wailing figure, it might be even creepier if you decide to watch it.
Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. Patrons giving $5 per month or more become official weirdos and get commercial-free versions of every Weird Darkness episode I post. Patrons at the $10 per month level or higher get more exclusive content, such as chapters of books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them, often weeks or months before they ever hit retail or online stores. Learn more on the Become a Patron page at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find Weird Darkness on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, read creepy stories or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. But even more important than becoming a patron is sharing the podcast with people you know and suggest they subscribe. Whether you use text, email, instant message, social media post, phone call, or, or other method to tell others about Weird Darkness, doing so is greatly appreciated and it benefits me by benefiting the sponsors. And, well, it doesn't cost you anything to do it either. And please check out those businesses who are supporting the podcast. Visit the sponsors page at WeirdDarkness.com for a full list. That's also the page to go to if you'd like to become a Weird Darkness sponsor yourself or if you're just curious about it. And if you listen via Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, and if you leave a review there, I might read your comment here in the podcast. Justa8806 left a review saying, Tanya from OZ, awesome podcast. Your Christmas selection of stories were brilliant. Darren is a great storyteller. And then Throweck said, Amazing. This is an addictive podcast. I love every episode. Definitely worth a listen if you like the weird and wonderful. Have fun, weirdos. If you want to contact me through email or send me something through postal mail, you can find my info on the contact page at WeirdDarkness.com. All stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. The Legend of Bloody Mary was written by Stephanie Almazen. First-hand Bloody Mary stories were gathered by Audrey Webster. The Ship That Never Sank was posted at The Unredacted. A Veteran's Deal with a Demon was written by Christopher Patrick, one of our Weirdo family members, and was submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com. Kill the Dutchman was written by Troy Taylor, and La Llorona, the Weeping Woman, was written by Gina DeMuro. Music in Weird Darkness comes from Midnight Syndicate, Shadow Symphony, and Audioblocks, and you can find links to all of them in the show notes. Weird Darkness is a registered trademark of Marlar House Productions, copyright Marlar House Productions 2019. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Isaiah 43, verses 16, 18, and 19. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I, the Lord, am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And a final thought for you from Lindsay Reich. She said, Having a positive attitude gives you the power to uplift, the power to create change, the power to motivate, the power to inspire, the power to influence, the power to cultivate happiness, and the list goes on. 
I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. One bad night can change the rest of your life. Rodney's had a rough day. Having been trapped at a shipper for over 24 hours, he's now running late to get his load delivered. Tired and trying to make up time, he sideswiped the wrong truck. Being chased by an insane semi-driver, his only thought is to see his family again. He has spent his life working hard, driving many miles to support his family. Will this one night change everything? One Bad Night by Jason R. Davis Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar Hear a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com Security threats are everywhere, but with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit today. Restrictions apply. 